Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. And now I'm talking like this. Why am I talking like this? Is it adding anything to my presentation? No, but I feel like we're going to be hearing a lot of this this season. Yeah, Jason, uh, not into the old style of acting, I guess, which <laughs> that, will be tougher. You better get used to yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> that will be that will be tough, and maybe we'll talk about that more as we go on. Because in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we are going further back into the past, into film history than we've ever gone before. And I'm excited about this. I am always, as we've probably mentioned, really uh, pushing for us to look further back in film history. So I'm glad that we're doing this. We are looking at the films of 1953. And we are starting, as always, with the box office champion, which is the biblical epic, The Robe. And I think if Jason is not into old style acting, yeah. This was a, this was a rough one for me. Based <laughs> on that alone, plus all the other things about it. But um, Josh, why, you know, why did you want us to do 1953? I mean, obviously we want to cover as many years and as many pieces of film history as possible. But this, when we were talking about going further back, this was one of your top years. Why was it? Yeah, well, yeah, I think in general, I was just hoping for us to look back further. And in terms of this year, I think what we've done in, in a lot of whenever we've been picking years, whether they're older or more recent, is to kind of find a variety of different kinds of things to talk about, find some things that are really well known that people will be familiar with and maybe some lesser known things that will be hopefully fascinating for us to talk about. So we'll see as this season goes on. But to me, it seemed like there was a good mix of that. We're definitely going to be getting to some pretty well-known films later on in the season. And we'll be talking about some interesting curiosities or hopefully interesting curiosities as well. So I think we're going to get a good variety here. We're going to get some, as we'll talk about in this very episode, some movies that are important touch points in film history, even if the movies themselves maybe are not the best movies, um, or maybe they are. So hopefully that's that's the plan for this season. I think we've done that. You know, we've had some seasons where we're talking about turning points in film history in general. In 1967 was really a lot of the birth of New Hollywood when we were talking about that. And then 10 years later in 1977 is kind of the birth of the modern blockbuster in a lot of ways. So this isn't necessarily that turning point in a very large sense, but there are individual turning points. And I think this is one of them because as I'm sure we'll keep talking about, this is the first movie that was ever shown in CinemaScope. And the turning point here, I suppose, is the rise of television, is the popularity of TV. And just as they are now, film studios and movie theater companies thinking, what can we do to get people to continue to come to movie theaters rather than just watching stuff at home? That was a very thorough answer. Well, you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is, is there anything about this year that sticks out to you or are you just kind of following my lead here? No, I mean, this was a year, you, you, you know, certain years we all, we both have like campaigned for, and this was a Josh year to campaign for. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I, I admit upfront for the whole year, like, yeah, I don't like that style of acting, but that doesn't mean I don't like movies of that time period. I mean, there are so many good like Spencer Tracy performances from, you know, while everyone else was kind of just giving this uh, rot, you know, kind of I know wooden style. And, you know, so it'll be interesting to dissect that. I you know later in the year I picked a Marlon Brando movie and he's kind of the the forerunner or the godfather, quote unquote, of that modern acting style. So I don't want you to think that I'm going in close minded. But um, for instance, this movie, uh, uh, I, I think, had many problems, including the style of acting. Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people, the style, the non-naturalistic, often style of acting in, in films pre, say, the 1960s is tough. And I, I think it's a shame because I I understand it is different. I, I personally love this style of acting and I, I think it can be just as good. There can be many, many great performances. Naturalistic acting is not the only way for there to be good acting. But I think especially when you combine it with something like this, which is 
a bit musty and formal in a lot of its other elements as well, I can understand why that would be frustrating. And I didn't love this movie either. Certainly not. Yeah. Um, no, there's plenty of examples. You know, uh, the the little impression that I did up there is not that far away from a Hepburn, right? From Catherine Hepburn. And, right. you know, you you got people like we said, Spencer Tracy, Cary Grant. There's, there's of course, it's, it's a huge amount of talent on the screen, as we know. And then as you research it, not only is it talent, it's like, oh, this director made 50 movies and wrote 48 other movies, right? Like this yes. was that old studio system. So it is interesting to look back at how it was, how the wheel turned and also just how much work these and creative output everyone was putting out there. Right. That's yeah. what you do with output. You put it out. You put it out. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that's true. I mean, these are a lot of these people are just amazing workhorses. And Henry Coster, who directed this film that we're talking about, The Robe, is a great example of that. Churned out just a massive number of films in a, in a huge range of genres over the course of his career, because that's what you did when you were a studio director. And not that directors don't do that now, but I don't think quite to the same degree. It's like he's under contract and they give him a project and he directs it. And maybe it's a biblical epic and maybe it's a comedy and maybe it's a Western and it's just whatever is there for him. And he doesn't. And in a way, that's kind of interesting because be he was under contract, right? And he's not like a Hitchcock or someone like that. So maybe he doesn't get to choose all or any of his projects. And it's like, what are you bringing to the table as a director? Are you, um, you know, obviously a capable, uh, like you said, workhorse, but is there like a style or a definitive way that you're putting this out there that someone else might not have? Because sometimes an artist, you know, the thing that you think might not fit you is the thing that fits you best. Right. And I think there are some of these journeyman directors where if you see enough of their films, you can spot that. And in some cases, it's just that they're real professional and they get the best performances possible about whoever the actors are that are in the movie. And they tell the story in the way that it means to be told. And they're not putting a huge personal stamp on that. And I mean, maybe we'll talk more about Henry Coster's overall career later, but I haven't seen enough of his films to really say one way or another. Um, but this film, another thing that I find interesting, I think about this film is that this is the number one film at the box office in 1953, right? This is the most popular movie of that year. And it's a movie that's not really remembered anymore. Um, it was a massive hit and it was nominated for five Oscars. It, it grossed $36 million overall, although I think that might include re-releases on its budget of about four or four and a half million. Numbers are hard to nail down in this time period, as I'm sure we'll continue to learn as this season goes on. But it did, it set box office records for single day and single week grosses in a single theater. It was nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated for Best Actor for Richard Burton. It won Best Art Direction and Best Costume Design in Color. This is a time when color and black and white were separated, was also nominated for Best Cinematography in Color, and it won the Best Picture Drama Award at the Golden Globe. So this is a movie that was huge with audiences. It was big at the awards. And I feel like unless you're doing something like we're doing, where you're specifically delving into a certain kind of time period, or maybe you're a big fan of one of the stars of this movie, it's not something that people really watch anymore. 36 million would be 375 million, uh, almost 376 million today, Josh. Yeah, that's pretty good. And again, I think that may include some, some re-releases over time, but not over that much time. This isn't The Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind or something that's being re-released in theaters every year. So yeah, I just think it's interesting to look at something like this and, and something that was such a big deal and now has just sort of fallen by the wayside. I mean, you know, Josh, uh, we here in America, we love our religion. So uh, you can see why this was such a big hit then, why it was such a big TV hit, and why today we've moved on to other pieces of loving our religions. Right. Well, I think you are obviously putting a little sarcasm in there, but it's interesting to me that despite the uh, continued dominance of Christianity in American society, no studio would make this movie right now. A movie that is this overtly Christian would not be a major, major studio production, would not be the number one movie at the box office, would not get five Oscar nominations. These movies still get made, but not that way. I, I don't know. I mean, I agree with you on the studio part. I don't know if it couldn't be number one. 
you know, not number no. one for the whole year. Right. Sure. I agree with that. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, again, this is maybe we'll delve into this more. In the unless legacy. unless, of course, you know, Jesus was fighting Thanos. Right. If Jesus fought Thanos, <laughs> but that's the only way that it would happen. And yeah. they couldn't, it would have to be like Jesus man or something, right? It would be like a guy <clears throat> with the powers of Jesus or something would be fighting Thanos. <laughs> then maybe it would work. I think you're onto something and you should keep working that pitch out, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to make this happen. Um, so, and also this was a movie that was I think it wowed critics, and in part, it was because it was this CinemaScope thing, which was a huge, huge deal. All the coverage that I found of this film was at least as much, you know, even if it's if it's labeled a film review, it's at least as much about CinemaScope itself as it is about the content of this film. And I, I think maybe we don't realize how revolutionary CinemaScope was. And I didn't necessarily think of it that way. Like, oh, it's so wide. But, you know, movies now are in different aspect ratios all the time. It's not like revolutionary, but this was just a completely new way for people to even watch movies at the time that this came out. I was actually wondering, Josh, did that play any part into your picking this year or did you just find that out once you started looking into the robe? No, that was something that I had not thought of at all. So this was sort of a happy coincidence. And nice. really, the, this year for me um, was mostly about other movies that we're going to talk about later. And yeah. it was like, well, this is number one, so we'll throw that one in too. But um, this wasn't a movie that I was familiar with when I thought that we should try this year. And so it was it's a nice coincidence that that happened. So, yeah, so reviews, I, I kind of, uh, there's a lot of technical stuff about CinemaScope in some of these reviews that I didn't think we really needed to talk about. But Variety, especially as a, uh, you know, a trade publication goes into great detail about that. But focusing a little more on the content of the film, Abel Green in Variety said, at this point, the film and the technique cannot be divorced and any appraisal of the robe must be interlocked with CinemaScope itself. But the robe would be good as done in 2D or any of the more orthodox and less advanced widescreen stereophonic techniques. It is a big picture in every sense of the word. One magnificent scene after another, under the anamorphic technique, unveils the splendor that was Rome and the turbulence that was Jerusalem at the time of Christ on Calvary. It is to the major credit of all concerned that the film's unusual length of 135 minutes doesn't seem that much. While the editing was apparently sharp, director Henry Coster moved his large and difficult cast with sometimes kaleidoscopic pageantry. Yeah, I mean, Coster can frame a shot for sure. Like there's a yeah. lot of there's a lot of good looking stuff there. Uh, I agree that Rome uh, is probably the best of the settings. I don't really think we get all that much in. Jerusalem uh, in a way of the environment, as uh, Abel here is talking about. But I do want to, yeah, I mean, imagine going to the the first ever IMAX show, right? Or right. 3D, well, 3D, this was like an answer. Yeah, to this was a, yeah, this was so. a competitor of 3D at the time. But, yeah. but you, yeah, so yeah, if, um, did you, on your DVD, uh, did you have the Scorsese intro for the movie? Uh, oh, no, I did not. Okay, so mine had a Scorsese intro, and he's like, imagine you're sitting in the theater, and a picture comes on, or, you know, the, the, the curtains start rolling back on the screen, and then they keep going back, and then they keep going back, and then the picture comes on, and it's the entire, you know, width and length of the screen, and that, that's a, that is something that certainly would make you enjoy the experience more, especially if you had never seen it. Right. And I do love that this movie opens. I mean, I think a lot of theaters at the time had probably literal physical curtains, but just in case they didn't, this movie opens with curtains on the screen, like opening to just really emphasize to you what you are about to see and how big a deal it is. <laughs> so uh, other critics were less taken with the content of the film, even if they were wowed by the presentation. Richard L. Coe in the Washington Post said, the robe is well devised to show off how spectacular scenes have the power to take you further into a setting. And although it is, in a sense, an intimate story, it is played against spectacle. The effect is more a freeze than a complete canvas. Partly through the writing, 
partly through the variety of acting styles, this reverence does not stir the emotions. It is very hard to take seriously a film which presents so petulantly obvious a performance as J. Robinson's sophomoric Caligula, or a script which early observes, you have made me the laughingstock of Rome. These and matters like them are not aspects of fine motion picture making. So I'm going to say this up front. I think the J. Robinson performance is one of the worst performances I've ever seen in film. <laughs> Possibly wow. the worst. I couldn't, I don't understand like how this is his take on the character and how Coster allowed this to get through. From what I read, there was another actor that they had originally offered the role to, but that actor was, because uh, they're both theater actors, right? And that actor was too nervous to appear on film. Uh, which is strange. You would think it would be harder to perform in front of people in the moment. But I am baffled by this performance. And uh, I mean, say it took me out of the movie. I wasn't really into the movie, but it, it just took me out of the idea of movies. Let's say that. So <laughs> Wow. See, and I almost thought like the that performance is has been criticized. I, I don't know if it's in the next review I have in the portion that I quoted, but Multiple reviews that I read did single out that performance as bad. And weirdly, I almost thought that you were going to say that it was one of the only things that you liked about the movie because it's so over the top and campy. And whereas the, everything else is so just serious and, and, you know, and kind of dry, it's very reverent, um, as, as Richard Coe says, uh, to the Bible and to the novel, the Lloyd C. Douglas novel that this is based on, that when Robinson shows up, and he's having fun with it. He's giving you a ridiculous performance. I kind of liked it. It's terrible. It doesn't fit with anything in the movie. And it's not like, I mean, you're, I, the way you make it sound is like he was so aware of what was going on around him. He was I mean, doing maybe, this better performance on it. Maybe he wasn't, but he's clearly giving a performance that's not in line with the tone of the rest of the movie. Yeah, I will agree with that, Josh. Yeah. I I thought it was like, I I mean, what else can I say? It's just dreadful. And um, uh, well, whatever, Josh. You, I, mean, uh, I, think, I think there's so many movies where some actor comes in and is playing the villain and you're like, this guy or lady is going way too far with this compared to what everyone else is doing in the movie. But sometimes... That's fun to watch is is all I'm saying. Yeah, I guess because this he's playing Caligula and not, right. you know, and not, um you know, a Batman villain that it's a little tougher to. Well, right, uh, but he's playing place. it as a Batman villain, basically. <laughs> I mean, if we, if we were going to do that, then I would have much rather have seen like, you know, it's Caligula, right? The yeah. the the emperor known for excess, correct? Yes. Like we should have had him, you know, like every speech should have been while he's having an orgy and drinking bottles of wine. In, the, and in like, this biblical <laughs> epic of 1953 from really a renowned novel written by a pastor. That yeah. the orgies in it. Yeah. Just go. If you're going to go for it, then go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, clearly he was the one who was going for it. I don't know that anyone else was uh, uh, anticipating that, but uh, fair enough. So our old friend Bosley Crowther in the New York Times was not a fan of this film at all. He said, 20th Century Fox removed the wrappings last night from its much heralded cinemascope production of The Robe and revealed a historical drama less compelling than the process by which it is shown. The panoply and splendor of Emperor Tiberius's Rome, the turbulence of Jerusalem, and the dustiness of the Holy Land have never been shown with more magnificence or sweep on a movie screen than they are on the great arching panel installed for the showing of the robe. And the mightiness of masses and the forms of heroes have never loomed so large as they do in this studied demonstration projected by Cinemascope. But an unwavering force of personal drama is missed in the size and the length of the show, and a full sense of spiritual experience is lost in the physicalness of the display. You know me, I don't like to agree with Bosley Crowther, but that's yes. uh, that's where we're at on this one, Josh. Yeah, um, it's interesting that openly people are talking about how this is meant to be this spiritual Christian experience, which, again, I feel like is something that no one in the mainstream press would be praising a film for now or criticizing a film for lacking. 
right now. So just a completely different attitude towards this kind of thing. I think I wonder, you know, where where this genre is now, because like you said, there's plenty of biblical movies and, you know, obviously uh, faith based movies and uh, they're they do well in that type of market. But is there a possibility? Was Mel Gibson the last one? You know, yeah, well, we'll I mean, I think maybe we'll bring this up later, but I, I, I have a few examples, but you're right. For the most part, this is not something that is done. This was something that was very big and very common in the 40s, in the 50s, and even earlier that this was, you know, Christianity was popular entertainment. The Bible was the ultimate intellectual property. And that's what studios were making. And it certainly fell out of favor, I would say, probably starting in the 1960s, and especially with New Hollywood coming in and people who are not looking for, they're, they're looking to do the exact opposite. I feel like you could hold this movie up as everything that New Hollywood and the French New Wave and people like that are trying to go against. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so given that we are all here Jews or half Jews, I don't think there's any reason that we would have seen this film in the past. Correct, no. Jason? I, I mean, I don't think, I mean, you know, just as a film person, you might, I, sure. I figured you might've seen it, Josh, but you know. No, no, I had not. I mean, and again, I feel like if I was doing, you know, a project like this or people try to watch all the best picture nominees or something like that, but otherwise this is not necessarily my genre per se. Although I think it can be amazing. I will say I saw uh, Ben-Hur on the big screen in a, you know, one of those, uh, revivals at a theater or something, which is super Christian. And it, it was a great, amazing experience and having that. And maybe if I had seen this in the original CinemaScope presentation or something, I, I would have been more wowed by it. Did you see the remake of Ben-Hur? I saw that too. That's not as good. Yeah, but I think it's a good example of what we're talking about, how the genre is so um, out of touch with what's going on. Today. Yeah, no, that's true. And Ben-Hur is, I mean, is a more famous movie than this, is a movie that people do still watch and seemed probably ripe for a remake. And that movie did not, I forget what year it was, but it was, you know, 10 years ago, maybe less, and did not make the kind of uh, money that uh, that the original did. So Dave, I assume you hadn't seen this one either. No, not at all. And uh, I, I, I probably would have like if I saw it on a list of like film history and the fact that it was the first CinemaScope, that was the thing that excited me the most about this, you know. And so just watching it for that, I was uh, kind of looking forward to it. Right. I think that's probably where its place is right now. If people find it of interest is, is because of CinemaScope. I want to add one thing, Josh. You mentioned the writers uh, who were credited as Gina Cowson. Philip Dunn, but most of the script was written by Albert Maltz, but he never got credit because he was one, speaking of uh, Jews, Josh, he was <laughs> one of the blacklisted writers during McCarthyism and, you know, the Red Scare and everything like that. And yeah. it wasn't until like the DVDs came out, which were maybe in the early 2000s, that his name was reinserted as a writer. Yeah. And that's happened with quite a few movies from that period where eventually in re-releases on home video and things like that, we get these blacklisted writers who are credited. And uh, and yes, uh, Lloyd C. Douglas is the writer of the novel, which was a huge, huge bestseller and sold the rights for, I think it was like $100,000 in uh, 1951 money. So, um, you know, Lauren, or 1942. In 1942, when the novel was published, it was sold the rights were sold for $100,000. So that's a lot of money. Whatever that is, it's yeah. a lot. Lloyd C. Douglas got that, but he had died uh, by the time this movie came out. So he never got to see it. Very sad. So uh, anything else on the background here you want to talk about? Uh, Josh, you were talking about the connection between film and television and keeping people in the theater. This movie, when it finally premiered on TV in 1967, and was shown on Eastern, did a 31 Nielsen rating, the second highest of all time behind the Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, 53% of all TV uh, watchers were watching it on that night. That's amazing. That's wow. another change that like, you know, a 31 Never rating. Yeah. Now, now if you get a like a 0.8 rating, you're doing really well. <laughs> so that difference is really staggering. <laughs> so we'll come back in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on The Robe.
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this premiere of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about box office champion The Robe. And given that this is, as I was saying, a movie that is semi-forgotten, I feel like we should say, just to kind of lay out the plot a little, it is a Christian movie. It is a biblical epic. As, as we've been saying, it is set in ancient Rome, right around the time of Jesus's crucifixion. It stars Richard Burton as Marcellus Gallio, who is a Roman tribune who finds himself tasked with the crucifixion of Jesus. And really, it fucks up his whole life. You, you gotta I, I say. Mean, I'm going to tell you, first of all, audience, we are doing this podcast in Cinemascope, so I hope you're enjoying <laughs> that right now. Yeah. But I'm watching this movie, and I'm not into it, and I'm like, did they really make the protagonist the guy who kills Jesus? Is that the move they went for? And it's not like he killed Jesus. Like, ah, I don't want to kill Jesus, but I got to kill Jesus. He's just like, yeah, eh, I was assigned to kill Jesus. So I'm going to go kill Jesus. And I was like, this is the protagonist. And I get what they did, this whole arc of redemption. And it's like, yeah, you killed Jesus, but he forgives you. And it seems like, as devout as these followers of Jesus are, none of them seem to care that this guy killed Jesus as long as they're, as long as they're like, we know you're a good guy, so why don't you recognize that you're a good guy? I mean, I think that's the point. You can say that it didn't work, but I think the whole idea is that even the person who killed Jesus is able to be forgiven, is able to be redeemed if he embraces Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so that's the point. Like the, the whole point of the story is that's who the protagonist is. I, I get it. I, it's yeah. not, it wasn't confusing to me, Josh. Right, right. I well, just, you're saying, why did they do this? Like, that's why they did it. Right. But, uh, but I don't, it didn't work for me in that okay. regard. Right. Yeah, no, like, that's fair. If, uh, you know, if, if you crucified Josh, you know, forget forget a, a God that I believe in. Even just what if you crucified Dave, do you think I would be like, come on, Josh, I know you're a good guy. You give me snacks when I go to your house. Why don't you realize you're a good guy? You think I would forgive you, Josh? No. Well, neither you nor Dave are the son of God, unless we're doing a whole kind of podcast I never knew about. Why am I getting no. crucified in this scenario, by the way? Uh, Dave, don't worry about that. <laughs> Um, I'm just, just get saying, on the cross, Dave. Forget about general, it. Don't ask questions. I don't know. I mean, there was this one moment where, like, you know, he's in um, where is he? What is it? Kasa? Is that where he goes to? Uh, Canaan? Kana? 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 Yeah. yeah. Right. And he meets all of Jesus's followers and everything, yeah. and they're all so nice and playing music, and a bunch of hippies just sitting in their, you know, hippie caves and spinning their their looms. Yeah. You know. Yep. Doing, Nothing like modern Christians. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, these guys, they weren't judging people based on sexuality or uh, other things, it seemed like. But um, at one point, you know, Jesus' disciple, Peter, Simon Peter, whatever you want to call him, comes. Yeah. And like, it's a big deal because he's like Jesus' main man, right? right. And the, the main guy who in uh, Kada, who was over there, uh, like showing Marcellus all around is like, hey, this is what we're good at. This is why we love Jesus. This is all this. Like he's starting to give a speech. So, yeah, we all love Jesus. And now Peter's here. And I just want to tell you how much we love Jesus. And Peter tries to speak and he goes, no, no, it's my turn. You'll have your turn. And I'm like, what? What kind of character beat is this? Yeah, that was super <laughs> awkward. I mean, I think it's not meant to be a character beat. It's meant to, because what happens next is that a Roman centurion kills that guy. And the point being that if that guy had stepped aside for Peter to speak, then the centurion would have killed Peter. But you're right. It's a really awkward way to make that happen. And, and that didn't really work because it's they're still just standing next to each other, you know. Right. Maybe the centurion assumes that the person who's speaking must be the important person that he's been sent there to kill. And thus... It, that's that guy. They don't have photos of people in this time period, you know. Mm, mm. Uh, I'm not going to blame it on the lack of photo technology, Josh. I'm just going to say it's a really bad movie beat. Actually, that is a good theory, Josh. I like that theory. <laughs> I mean, I know. I think that's the point of what they're trying to do in that scene. I, I, I'm with you, Jason, that it is not well put together. There could have been a better way to do that. But um, I think that is the idea. That 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 this guy has been like sacrificed in a way for for Peter. 
So mm. um, we a lot of say sacrificing the, in this. Uh, well, that's it's a Jesus movie. Of course, there's a lot of sacrificing. <laughs> that's the thing. That's mm-hmm. the yeah. thing that they do. Yeah, yeah. The other main characters in this film, um, Marcellus's Greek slave, uh, Demetrius, is played by Victor Mature, and he is the one who first comes to follow Jesus really right away. He sees Jesus kind of like a cross. They lock eyes and he falls in love with Jesus. And even before Jesus has been crucified, he's all in. And eventually he brings Marcellus around. And then there is Marcellus's love interest, Diana, played by Gene Simmons, who it comes around at the end, almost seemingly like reluctantly, begrudgingly, but uh, she is also eventually sacrificed for the sake of Christianity. But before then, she just wants to, this is what I'm saying. Before he meets Jesus, Marcellus has this wonderful woman who loves him and wants to marry him. He's got a good job as a Roman tribune. He's got a father who's a senator. They seem to live in a really nice house. And then he meets Jesus and it all goes to hell. Yeah, and you would think Jesus would want him to, um, you know, be a good citizen and, and procreate with this woman and be a good family man. These are all things Jesus believes in. But um, yeah, it didn't really work out, did it, Josh? No, no, really work no. Out. Spoiler alert, this movie ends with Marcellus and Diana like walking into heaven, I guess, is what it's supposed to be there. I think so. Uh, right, symbolically, because they're going to die now, too. Yeah, yeah, they are They are martyred for the cause of Christianity uh, after they've been arrested by, by Caligula, the ridiculous villain of this film. Yeah, so that now let's talk about that third act, right? Where, okay. you know, we're back in Rome. Uh, this guy, he's already murdered Jesus. Now he's trying to track down this robe. Then he's oh, like, Oh, yeah, we ah. didn't even talk about the robe yet. Yeah, do you want to go ahead and do that? Well, we can, yeah, do you want to, we can do that and circle back. So the robe, which first of all, the titular robe, Josh. The titular robe does not look like a robe. It's just a blanket. I don't know. This movie should be called The Blanket, I think. <laughs> but it well, is. Well, they didn't have photos of robes to base it on. <laughs> true. Well, but true. they wore robes. Like literally everyone in this movie is wearing a robe, and yet they carry this thing and they're like, it's a robe, but it's a blanket. Anyway. Um, so when Jesus is crucified, his blanket falls off on the ground, I guess. And this other Roman tribune or centurion picks it up. And, is and that uses, Paulus? Paulus, I think his name is? Maybe, yeah. And uh, he uses it. They're playing dice. They're gambling. And I guess he's run out of whatever Roman money and decides to take this old rag and that somehow has value. But it's it's been on Jesus. And basically, Marcellus touches it. And he's cursed. He's straight up cursed. He touches this robe and he goes like crazy. And he has all these horrible nightmares before he touches the robe. As you're saying, Jason, he's like, eh, I guess I got to kill Jesus, whatever. But now he's he's racked with guilt and anguish, but it almost doesn't seem like genuine guilt. It's not like he's reflected on it and decided that he was wrong. He's just magically. Right. It's bewitching. It's bewitching guilt, Josh. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So what did you think of the robe? Well, so then they're like, ah. Uh, oh, it's Tiberius, right? He's like, yes, eh, he's the emperor, right? You got to get your head straight. Go track down this robe, right? And yeah. destroy it, and then you'll be good, man. You know, I mean, so, they're superstitious. They think it's cursed. That's how you get rid of the curse. You destroy the cursed object. Yeah. So, all right, all this has happened. Blah blah blah. Marcellus now has uh, sacrificed himself to get his friend Demetrius free in these kind of. We can talk about the action set pieces in a minute here, but the last bit is this huge quote unquote, like, you know, we covered a few good men. It's a courtroom sequence, right? It is in a way. Yes. Where Caligula and Marcellus have this tete-a-tete and the Romans are supposed to decide the fate, even though we already know the Romans are like in Caligula's pocket, right? And everything. And uh, between both of the performances and I thought like whatever good writing in there just got lost because of that was such a long scene. They just kept going in circles over and over. And it was just like, man, you could have trimmed five minutes out of this and had a way more effective product. I felt like. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think they're really trying to hammer home the point, um, which maybe they don't need to at that, at that stage of the film. But the idea, especially that Marcellus 
is still a good Roman tribune. He's still loyal to the empire, but he is also loyal to Jesus. And it is possible to be both of those things. And yeah. I mean, they that. say they literally say that. They do. They do. So indeed, that's yes. what I mean. You could have this gotten rid of everything movie. about <laughs> No. Uh, Josh. All right. Uh, I, I, Victor Mature. I yeah. really like Victor Mature as an actor. And I like him in this movie. He's the best yeah. thing in this movie to me. Tell me, I mean, Richard Burton, who I have seen in better films do better work. Even Richard Burton says this isn't one, uh, one that he's a fan of. Right. I mean, it's a very big, like, you know, we can, we can talk about Caligula and how that performance is, is campy and over the top, but every performance in this movie is very big. It's very declarative. It's very like, we are reading the Bible to you. We are reading this novel to you. And you're right. I, some, some letterbox reviewer, I forget, said, said something along the lines of like, this movie needed to be in cinemascope in order to fit in Richard Burton's ego. Um, and certainly, yeah, it's, it's, I'm not going to argue that this movie is full of great acting at all. It is full of acting. That is perhaps what the director wanted is perhaps what is typical for this genre, where it's very much like we need to hit you over the head with everything, including every bit of emotion has to be exaggerated. And, and Richard Burton comes from this background of the stage he, this was one of his first movies in the U.S. He's on a lot of like Shakespeare. And I think this is, this is a movie where he's still playing to the rafters of the theater, maybe. I mean, he's not nearly the biggest performances in this, as we've mentioned. But yeah, Gene Simmons, I didn't think she was effective in this. And like, these are like legends of screen, right? Gene Simmons, Guys and Dolls, Hamlet, Spartacus. Like, these are real heavyweight actors. And I, I just think it was a total miss for the most part, on the performances. And I, I'm saying that here as we talk currently, and this is, you know, going back almost, you know, 70 years, but it really took me out of the movie uh, pretty much every scene. Yeah, I mean, and I don't necessarily disagree with you. I mean, I, again, Burton was nominated for an Oscar for Best Actor, but I think if we look at the range of films in 1953, as we go through this season or films from this year that I've already seen, I'm sure I would be able to pick out better choices for the best actors of 1953. So even judged by the standard at the time, I think you're right. It's not great acting. It, these kinds of movies don't call for great acting per se. They call for lots of acting. And that's what we've got going on here. Yeah. Um, okay. So Josh. Do you want to talk? What did you think of the action sequences? I thought they were fine. And I thought it was kind of amusing that even though they're telling this, this biblical story that they're like, we got to find a way to get people to sword fight. How can we get them to have a sword fight? And so, I mean, I thought that stuff was fine. Like what's good about this movie to me is the lavishness of it. It's the cinemascope. It's the costumes. It's the set design. It's the the amount of extras, the kind of things that we don't do in movies anymore, which like we just got a bunch of people to show up here or we built all these sets, you know, there's matte paintings. To me, that is the best stuff. And the action for the time period is is, is solid. So, but I'm going to guess that you hated it. I, I mean, it didn't do much for me, but then we got one of these sequences where they're sneaking in to save Demetrius, right? And Marcellus goes to the door and he like distracts a guard Right. And he go, and like once he gets the guard, he's like now and like all of his uh, disciples like or whatever, his uh, gang or whatever you want to call them, they jump down and they beat up the other guys and then they let Marcellus in. And I'm like, why did you just fucking sneak in with them, dude? Why? What kind of asshole entrance is this you're making? I guess I didn't think about that. <laughs> I mean, these are things that drive me crazy in films. I like, you know. I've told you about that. There's a sequence in The Rock that's like that. If anyone wants to know, just hit oh, me up. Oh, man. I, I did not expect The Rock to be something that would be compared I mean, to The Rope. I mean, you know, or... I think performance-wise, we're almost on the same level there. Um, <laughs> the winner of Best Actor in 1953 was William Holden for Stalag 17. Okay, yeah. See, and then that's obviously that's better. And and is a much, you know, if we talk, I want to talk about acting styles is much more naturalistic, is much more emotionally resonant this yeah. isn't a movie where you're going to really connect with the characters on an emotional level well i did think the child actor harry shearer did a good <laughs> job in this film yes harry Shearer. is it his screen debut i assume but certainly one of the first things that he ever did yeah and uh yeah and how would you like the donkey in this movie 
Well, the donkey uh, did a good job of moving from one owner to the next and <laughs> keeping its uh, motivation of being yeah. a beast of burden. So I felt the donkey did a good job. Excellent. And are you now a convert to Christianity? Hey, uh, Josh, what's the uh, difference between Jesus and a painting of Jesus? Let's hear it. It only takes one nail to hang a painting of Jesus. Oh, man. I think I used to tell that joke when I was 12. <laughs> Maybe you told it to me. That is that is a classic. Well, I, I think that's really the last word on this film. I don't know if there's any. Dave, do you want to? What did you think of this, Dave? Yeah, I, I think I, I wouldn't say I liked it, but I liked it better than I think either of you, mainly because I, I really liked the idea of it from the get go of like following this Roman tribune who is tasked with being one of the guys who, who crucifies Jesus. I think it's a great start for an idea. It just then gets very Jesus-y and very, as you guys have been talking about, very big in the performances and not in a good way. And the the last hour is kind of just, uh, you know, just drudged through the whole thing. But production design is fantastic. So, I mean, it gets some points in various places. I mean, it, the Jesus movie got Jesus-y. <laughs> got yes, a little too right. Jesus-y for well, me. Well, maybe at first, if you don't know everything about it, you could maybe assume that the Jesus aspect is a historical background detail and not necessarily about it's not necessarily a religious movie because mm -hmm. I think there are things like that where Jesus is a historical figure. We could make a movie that takes place at the time that Jesus was alive, but it doesn't necessarily have to be about preaching about Christianity. That's not what this movie is, though. This yeah. is definitely a movie that is hoping to be a spiritual experience for people, as as some of these reviewers talked about. Yeah. It was so, dispiriting to me. Yeah, clearly. I can tell. I can tell that it was. So, uh, Jason, should we rate this out of uh, five, five blankets? Five blankets, yeah. <laughs> uh, I give it one and a half blankets, Josh. Ooh, that it's, is one of your lowest ratings. It might be my least favorite movie we've ever watched in an awesome movie year. Wow. This is worse than than I Know Who Killed Me? I that, was like the, that was the one I compared it to in my mind. I'm like, what is worse? <laughs> and I'm like, they both have their merits. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. I feel like that's bottom of the barrel for us. But okay. See, I, I didn't mind. I'm going to give this two and a half blankets. I appreciate it from a film history standpoint. I, I aesthetically was impressed with it. It's definitely not very engaging narratively or dramatically, but I didn't mind watching it. So Dave, how would you rate this? I'm between two and a half and three, but I'm going to go to three just to uh, give it a little extra juice there. Just piss Jason off. Yeah. <laughs> I know you don't mean it, Dave. You're, you have the same type of sorrow as Marcellus did. It's not real. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We're all here responsible for killing Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> That'll be, that's an important legacy. So we'll come back and talk about the legacy of the robe. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this premiere of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about the box office champion, the biblical epic, The Robe. And in terms of legacy, Jason, because you've mentioned this a couple of times, do you want to start by talking about the decline of the biblical epic or how this genre kind of faded away? Yeah, Josh, go for it. Oh, okay. I thought you had something to say about it. I mean, no, I mean, it's it, it's interesting. You said you had marked down some examples and I thought of Mel Gibson and, you know, the 60s uh, before that kind of French New Wave and New Hollywood took over in America. But um, I don't really, I mean, in my mind, I'm sure there there was a couple in the 70s and 80s, but they were already waning by that point in time, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think this is the heyday for it. And and while The Robe has been forgotten, um, there are some that that remained perennial favorites, uh, like Ben-Hur, for example, that we were talking about earlier, or The Ten Commandments, um, Spartacus, that uh, they in fact mentioned Spartacus briefly here. But yeah, it, it declined. And, and I think it does. It's something that comes up every now and then. And you mentioned Mel Gibson and The Passion of the Christ, and that was obviously a very successful movie. But I think weirdly that belongs more in the category of like niche Christian filmmaking, because that was a movie where Mel Gibson is devoutly religious, decided he wanted to make this movie to celebrate and sort of convey his religious beliefs and did it basically on his own. And that's what we get with a lot of these much smaller scale independent Christian films. I think studios 
rarely do it. There is the Ben-Hur remake that you mentioned. Um, I recently just watched and wrote an article about a movie that I really like, which is Darren Aronofsky's Noah, that I think subverts a lot of the uh, sort of conventions of this kind of movie and is a really fascinating and very dark film on its own, but um, you know, wasn't necessarily all that well regarded. Um, there was the Ridley Scott film Exodus Gods and Kings, which I think was pretty terrible and also didn't do very well at the box office. So every once in a while, I feel like studios get the idea that they're going to do one of these, but they don't really know because it can't be too Christian anymore because that's alienating. And so it's just, it doesn't work. And you're not going to be surprised when I say this, the one that I would most gravitate towards and would want to rewatch again is The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, because one, I am such a Scorsese fan, but two, like he, uh, he's, he's got that magical mixture, right. Of like, he has this kind of, uh, like the entire breadth of film history in his mind when he's creating something like this, but he's also essential in that decade of the seventies of, of new Hollywood. So that to me, what 87 would be the one to revisit. Yeah, and I actually haven't seen that. So I, I would love to see that. That's one of the Scorsese films that I've not seen. Does he mention in that intro that you watched a connection between this film and that one? He does not. Okay. But I mean, presumably, if he recorded an intro for this, this was a movie he had seen uh, in his young I think days. he was one of, you know, this is part of the project when he was, I mean, it was restored based right. on him and his foundation and all of that type of thing. Right. So surely something he would have had in mind when making Last Temptation. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think he's probably, uh, you know, all of them that we've talked right, about. Right, right. Scorsese, has, he has every film ever made yeah. in his head. That's he already Scorsese. knew about, um, you know, the Mel Gibson stuff 12 years ahead of the time. Right. Yeah, that's that's how magical Scorsese is. <laughs> Um, so as we said, Henry Coster, the director was very, very, very prolific. This was in the later part of his career. Um, probably the most famous movie he's known for directing is Harvey, the Jimmy Stewart movie about the imaginary rabbit. Um, he, after this directed not that many more movies, but, um, I have seen another kind of stilted historical epic that he made after this called the Virgin Queen with Betty Davis, who I love. Um, also the Bishop's wife, which is kind of a, sure. a Christmas favorite. I've also seen, um, he made movies in many, many, many genres. He retired after his last movie in 1966, which was the singing nun and, um, retired to paint portraits of many of the movie stars that he worked with and died in 1988. Yeah. He's a real, um, you know, like you said, a workhorse, Josh, two of the crew members are, pieces of film history. The director of photography, Leon Shamroy, is, uh, holds the record with 18 Oscar nominations and four wins for cinematography. Uh, he's done The King and I, Cleopatra, Planet of the Apes. And then um, Albert Newman, who did the score, has nine Oscars and 45 nominations. Wow. Yeah. Again, yeah. The King and I, Camelot. So... Uh, big time stuff from uh, this talented group. Yeah. And the score is, I mean, it's bombastic, but I think it's, it's good. It, it, it's yeah, appropriate. Yeah, it fits the tone. Yeah. And yeah. the cinematography is fine too. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Was again, one of the Oscar nominations for this. So we talked a bit about Richard Burton. This was one of his breakthrough movies in the US. He had done a lot of theater in the UK as well as some films there and became a big, big movie star um, from the 1950s really onward. And he was nominated, I think, seven, seven times. Yeah, yeah, seven Oscars and never won. This was one of them. Uh, before this, he had been nominated for Best Supporting Actor for My Cousin Rachel, and then subsequently was nominated for Best Actor for this. Beckett, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Anne of the Thousand Days, and Equus. Uh, he worked basically until the end of his life. The last movie he made was a version of 1984 in 1984 which was the year that he died. So have you seen him in other stuff, Jason? Yeah, I mean, I think he's, you know, uh, the, the Elizabeth Taylor stuff, right? That's where yeah. most of us know him. And I know there's a podcast right now that I think Katy Perry hosts called Elizabeth the First about oh. how Elizabeth Taylor was like a social media star before oh. there was such a thing. And obviously you have to tie in that relationship with um, Burton and just how it captured the public fascination for years and years. So. 
I I think he's more fun in that stuff. He's having more fun, it feels like to me. Right. I mean, he was definitely known for a lot of these kind of period pieces and and Shakespearean things and stuff like that, including multiple of his Oscar nominations. But I the only other thing I've seen him in is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with, of course, Elizabeth Taylor, which I I think we talked about maybe when we talked about Mike Nichols and The Graduate, I don't particularly care for. And to me, the kind of like overacting in that movie, which is just as unnatural as this old school acting style in this movie, I find that less appealing than well, this kind of acting. Well, you've been, you mentioned the Shakespearean background. I think Taming of the Shrew is probably the place to start for him uh, uh, for, you know, if you want to get in and see what he can do in a little more um, flair, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to check that out. I haven't seen Hey, it. Josh, my cousin Rachel, as you know, the precursor to my cousin Vinny. That is inaccurate. <laughs> But I if don't only it so. were true. <laughs> um, you li- so Jason, you like Victor Mature? Everything uh, I've seen this guy and he he nails it. I feel like you know Las Vegas Story is a movie I watched uh, last year. I know you're not a big fan, but I think he's really good. And I want to go back and watch Kiss of Death. I feel like he is a good mix of like kind of like one of these bigger than life early personalities but also he brings something real to his performances yeah he was he did some kind of tough guy stuff although he was in musicals as well um i yeah he is good in lost in the las vegas story i've seen many 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 las vegas movies for various reasons and that's not necessarily one of my favorites but um he is good in that i i think what i love about him and reading about him that i didn't realize is that he kind of didn't take acting very seriously he was a pretty big star for a little while And then in 1966, when he was only 46, he was like, you know what? I'm good. And he basically retired. He did a handful of small roles until 1984 and then died in 1999. And I love this quote from him. He was like, I was okay financially. So I thought, what the hell? I'll become a professional loafer. You know, that is like my idol right here. Yeah. (laughs) Just moved to Palm Springs. Maybe do an opening of a club here and there, and that's that, right? Yeah, at age 46. So I've got I've got four years for this podcast to make enough money yeah. so that I can follow in Victor Mature's footsteps. Hell yeah. 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 I think um, Dave, you better get cracking on these Time uh, to get uh, cracking sponsors. Sure. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was also I I know his daughter, uh, Victoria Mature, is a fixture uh like a, a TCM film festival and on TCM and stuff like that is very involved in c- keeping his legacy alive and I may have seen her introduce a movie somewhere at that festival I don't recall but she's definitely big into preserving that Hey Josh here's a fun fact for you Ooh. Richard Burton was once threatened with a gun by Stuart Granger because of the affair he was having with Granger's wife Jean Simmons Lovely old Hollywood gossip yeah. amazing uh, Gene Simmons, who played Diana here, as I mentioned, Guys and Dolls, Hamlet, Spartacus. Um, but then listen to this. The elaborate poster for the film had one glaring flaw. The woman's face is not Gene Simmons. Originally, Gene Peters had been cast as Diana, but became pregnant. Simmons was hired to replace her, but the poster was not changed and shows the wrong Gene. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Women in Hollywood, the right, 1950s. Right. I mean, they got the same first name. Does it really matter? That's <laughs> enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I will say I haven't seen a ton of things in her with that she's been in, but I saw a movie that she starred in that she got an Oscar nomination for, or maybe just a Golden Globe nomination, but it's called Home Before Dark, where she plays this mentally ill woman who is trying who's been released from an institution and is trying to adjust back to normal life and she is fantastic in that movie it's a really really good movie i think dave and i actually talked about it on one of our best first time watch uh episodes of piecing it together at the end of a year yeah um and uh that's just a great great movie and a very different kind of movie than this but she's excellent in that and she had a really long career i mean she worked on tv later in her career including the thorn birds which was a major major tv miniseries in the 80s and all the way through to the 2000s, she was doing voice work in the English dub of Howl's Moving Castle and uh, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. So she died in 2010 and had a very, very long career. That's that's pretty great. I mean, not yeah. the fact that she died, but the rest of it. Uh, right. Josh, 
What do you think of this? Lawrence Olivier as Marcellus and either Tyrone Power or Burt Lancaster as Demetrius and Janet Lee as Diana. Um, I'm I'm for it. I think Olivier is, I mean, obviously Olivier is great, although, you know, Olivier could be a total ham, especially later in his career. And uh Burt Lancaster is a great kind of tough guy actor, I think. Yeah. So that that would have been good. He I did all right. Simmons- he did all right in 1953, though. <laughs> yeah. we we'll get to him later in this season. Yes, yes, we will. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that the casting is the problem as much as it is just sort of the style of movie that these people are in and the way that they are meant to give these performances. Speaking of performances, Josh, tell me about our friend Jay Robinson's performance in the 1986 classic, The Malibu Bikini Shop. (laughs) I hope it's as good and as crazy as his performance in this movie, because really, both of them probably would would benefit from the same tone. It was uh, I I when I saw that I was like, all right, IMDb, and like the log line's exactly what you would expect. Two recent college grads inherit a bikini shop and don't know how to keep it afloat. I wonder what they're going to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is guy. <laughs> this guy obviously had a whole career of campy stuff. He was actually in a. A movie in 1982 directed by uh, our friend Albert Pune, The Sword and the Sorcerer, which was Pune's directorial debut. So he was definitely in the B-movie realm at that point. He was in Big Top Pee-wee, and I bet he had a fun career. Yeah. Um, You're down on him for no reason. Josh, do you think the uh, the filmmakers behind the Malibu Bikini Shop one day were watching the robe and were like, that's the guy, Caligula, <laughs> that's the guy we need to complete this cast. I hope that they were. I mean, probably not. But really, honestly, if you were making a bikini movie and you watched this and you were like, that 1950s character actor is available for our bikini movie, would you not want him? In a bikini, no less. I, oh, yeah. Well, we have to watch this then and, and really discover. <laughs> when we get to 1986... We have this and rad already on the board. Amazing. That's going to be a, that's going to be a wonderful, a wonderful Hell season. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we haven't yet talked about the sequel to this film, Demetrius and the Gladiators, which starred Victor Mature again as Demetrius. Of course, Richard Burton and Gene Simmons did not return because their characters were in heaven. But uh, <laughs> Demetrius continued on uh, spreading the word of Christ and uh, getting... Uh, forced to become a gladiator, it sounds like. That, of course, was not based on the source novel because there was no more material there. But what I found fascinating, and, and this is something that I was I hadn't mentioned, but you know, I feel like this genre is like sort of the equivalent because it was such a huge thing blockbuster-wise is the equivalent of like superhero movies now. You know, we talked about Jesus fighting Thanos or whatever. And like superhero movies, they produced, they they filmed and finished making that sequel before the robe was even released. You yeah, know, this was this was a an anticipatory thing. Is the kind of thing that we see now. You don't imagine it happening back then. Right, Peter Jackson. When we talked about him in Lord of the Rings, I thought the same thing. I was pretty uh, gutsy move in the 1950s. Right, and obviously it worked out. This was a huge hit, and then the sequel was also a huge hit. So um, no more after that. It didn't become a franchise, but there was that. Um, and then finally, CinemaScope, as we said, was was revolutionary and was a major process used in, in films by 20th Century Fox, who owned CinemaScope until 1967. And uh, there were a bunch of sort of knockoff versions of it. If you watch movies from the 1950s, you'll see a lot of like something scope or whatever that different studios made their own versions of it. But it was a big deal. And then it kind of tapered off, coinciding with the rise of New Hollywood. New Hollywood, crushing the dreams of these people left and right. Indeed. But but it is something that I think it, it the, like even if you don't know the details about what CinemaScope is, it is like a term and a logo that brings to mind those old Hollywood associations. And you'll see it pop up in newer movies that are trying to evoke that. I mean, we talked about Down With Love in a previous episode, and that uses the CinemaScope logo, and even the black and white re-release of Logan, another, Jason, I know, favorite of yours, throws the CinemaScope logo on there as a sort of shorthand for like, this is trying to evoke a classic film. But that's basically what it's used for now. Yeah. I got nothing but love for CinemaScope. All right. Do you have anything else to say about the legacy of this film? Well, Josh, I would like to say a lot, but instead I think it's time to 
move out to Plex. Thank you for that wonderful bit of classical acting. So that is The Robe, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can convert us to your religion of choice online and on social media. Yeah, we we need guidance. We need all the help. We we're rubes, really. Come get we us. We are. Yeah. Uh, Josh, we're at awesomemovieyear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy and all the socials. Don't forget my new projects, Eat This Comedy and the Trivia Party on Instagram. Also, Go For Jason is a website that uh, has been bewitched by a robe. But Go For Jason is also my name on Letterboxd. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, which is also perhaps bewitched, and at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And you could also check me out on Letterboxd by David Rosen. Oh, yeah. And remember, he was crucified this episode. So listen, go check out his music or something. <laughs> be, be, be nice to him. I deserve it. <laughs> He's bleeding from his hands and feet. <laughs> Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, it's our first feature. This guy called Stanley Kubrick. I don't know. Maybe he became a thing. We just did a Stanley Kubrick episode. I'm excited to do another Fear and Desire, uh, one I've never seen before, Josh. And nor have I, and nor had a lot of people for a long time. So we'll get into all that when we talk about Fear and Desire. Tune in for that next time. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.